Uh, my name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And if you're new, we are in a series called About That Life, and it's a series in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's a series about how to live a life as a disciple in Jesus' kingdom. And so far, what we've been doing is, is we've done some foundation work early on in this series. We looked at a couple of core questions, like one, who is Jesus? The one we believe preached this sermon. Two, um, what does it mean to be a disciple, uh, someone who comes underneath the teaching of this sermon? And we looked at what is the sermon itself, what literary genre is it in, and, and what is happening? How do we apply this? And then a couple weeks ago, we shifted from answering questions about the sermon to describing the kind of people Jesus is calling us to be. And so um, Maria looked at the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mounts. And then I looked at this idea that we are salt and light. And so that's kind of the identity of a disciple. And then the last week, we shifted into what will be the rest of the series, which is no longer looking at who disciples are, but how disciples um, live. Uh, like what they believe, how they behave, um, you know, kind of action-oriented, imperative words, how they believe and behave. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the, the beliefs that Jesus himself held when it came to the scriptures. And we said to be a mature follower of Jesus, we need to have his same view of the Bible, um, that it's authoritative, that it's perfect, that, that, it's, that it points to Jesus, that it's okay to wrestle with, but it's to be taught and obeyed. And at the end of that passage, uh, one of the, my last point last week was that Jesus says that the Bible teaches us a deeper way to live a righteous life that's deeper than just kind of re fake religion or hypocritical uh, kind of virtue signaling, like I just do good stuff to get people to see it, but, but actually my interior life is changed. It's not just my exterior actions are changed. And so at the end of the passage last week, Jesus said this. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, again, the scribes and the Pharisees were on paper the most religious people at this time in Israel. They were like the spiritual gurus. Everyone would look to them for religious counsel and leadership. And they'd go, hey, we want to be like them. Again, we can have a negative view of the Pharisees in the 21st century, especially in a culture that's like all about you do you. Back then they were like, I do what the rabbi does. And, and that's what a respectable um, Jew at that time, Second Temple Judaism, would have thought. Um, pretty much they, they all would have thought that. Even those who weren't doing it felt bad about not doing it, if that makes sense. It's a very religious culture. And so Jesus is now going to say, hey, listen, um, the, the Old Testament said something. The teachers of the law taught you the Old Testament, and then they applied what the Old Testament said in a specific way. And I'm going to tell you that you can be better than that. Uh, he's, he's, you know, so, for example, um, the Old Testament said, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, I say, do not even allow wrongful lust into your hearts. That objectifies. Uh, the Old Testament said, let divorce be done legally. I say, don't divorce without serious cause. The Old Testament said, do not swear falsely. Jesus said, I say, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. He's like, not lying is great. You know what's even better? Always following through on your commitments. Um, he's like, not committing adultery is great. You know what's even better? Not being the kind of person who wants to commit adultery if the consequences weren't there. And so to G today, Jesus is going to say something similar about another area of our life. He's going to say the Old Testament said, do not murder. I say, do not give your heart over to anger. Which leads to the title of today's sermon. Last week was the submitted life. This week's the righteous life. And it's called righteous because I believe there is a righteous and unrighteous way to handle our anger according to the New Testament. Which leads me to uh, today's outline on anger. Uh, by the way, any angry people in the house? 
Oh, okay, cool. We got some. Okay, cool. We got some self-aware people. Um, we'll get into that in a second. I'll say all the angry people say yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> like a screamo band in 2004 or whatever. All right. Um, <laughs> that system of a down playing at church. All right. All right. Uh, number one, anger is normal, but it's powerful and dangerous. First point. Uh, anger is normal, but it's powerful and dangerous. Two, uh, unresolved righteous anger in our relationships with each other impacts our relationship with God. Three, we must resolve anger, anger as quickly as we can to avoid the fallout on our souls and the souls of those we love. Okay, so number one, anger is normal, but it's also powerful and dangerous. And to tap into this idea, we're going to start in Matthew, Jesus' actual words in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. If you guys have Bibles, you can turn there. I will have it on the screen. It says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Uh, pretty chill passage. Jesus is pretty intense here. I think he's intense for a really good reason, um, but he's not just intense. He's doing something profound, whether you saw it or not. He is saying that murder comes from a place in the heart we have all visited. We've all been there. And it's, this, it's a heart posture of anger and contempt for another person. Um, the seeds of anger that become the tree of murder are in our hearts just waiting for circumstances and patterns to water them. Now, Jesus is going, um, the religious leaders, uh, they're like, I didn't murder anybody. I'm a good person. He's like, cool. Um, there's more to, to, to loving God, loving people than that. Again, it's inside out righteousness. It's not, I'm just not murdering, right? Because like for them, it's like, that's a pretty low bar in a lot of ways. Murder is redeemed. You can be redeemed. You can be forgiven for murder. There's also like people in prison all the time get, get saved and all that stuff. Um, but, but by and large, it's not something most people do most days, Okay. Um, and we can even get kind of self-righteous about that, right? You listen to some true crime stuff. You're like, man, these people are messed up. I'm not like these people. I remember one time I was at a conference and Paul Tripp was speaking at this little pastor's breakout. And this was like a throwaway line. It wasn't the point of his message at all. But he was just talking about like how ungrateful he can be. And, uh, and he just said one time, I remember we, my wife, we, we had our second child. We lived in Philadelphia uh, in the 80s. I had a car that the heat didn't really work on. And, uh, and after I had like explicitly ran through a list with my wife two days before, you know, what do you need from the store? Uh, and I, I said, double checked it, you know, hey, what do you need from the store? And she said, okay, no, this is it. He said, cool. He said, I went to the store. And then two days later, it's about 1130 at night. And she's like, hey, we're out of diapers, let's say. And, uh, and then he realizes, I need to go to the store in the snow in Philadelphia in the winter, and it's freezing. And I remember a life before I was married. And I remember a life before I had kids. And he said, I started fantasizing about what would it be like to not have the responsibility or burden of marriage or children. And, uh, and then he just goes, really chill. He's like, so what I was doing was murdering my family in my heart. <laughs> And he said, I'm like, yeah, I'm cool if you weren't here so I could get what I want. Um, now, with that intense start, you might be thinking Jesus is saying anger is just real bad, right? 
Um, we, we are all prone to um, toxic anger and all that stuff. And some of us might have even grown up, and by the way, he isn't saying all anger is bad. Uh, some of us grew up in families that forbade hard emotions like anger. You might have come from a family where your, your parents were actually even, they were emotionally antagonistic. They would actually say, you're not allowed to be sad or angry, right? I'll give you something to cry about. You're, you're not allowed to be angry. We don't, uh, we don't do anger in this house. It might have been um, not emotionally antagonistic, but emotionally avoidant. They might have been like, let's turn that frown upside down, you know? I can see you're mad, but let's be happy, right? Um, and, uh, and, um, and, and, or maybe for you, you're limited in engaging your anger, not because your parents told you you couldn't be anger, angry, but they modeled anger in a horrendous way where people maybe even were hurt or abused or terrified. And you said, I'm never going to let what's happening in them happen to me. I'll never be a person who's out of control. And I'm equating out of control with experiencing the emotion of anger. Now, anger is an emotion. Um, it, it overtakes kind of your soul and your body in a real way when we don't get what we think we need. Okay? Um, one, one guy said it this way. He said, when our will has been thwarted, when our plan doesn't go through the way that we want. It could be a small plan. It could be a big plan. It could be a small desire or a big desire. So we all get angry. That's what I'm going to say to you guys. All of you get angry. The question isn't, are you going to get angry? The question is, why are you getting angry? What do you do with that anger? You know, what do you do when you get angry? And are you paying attention to that anger? Um, even people who are quiet, this has shocked me over the years, can be seething under the surface. They're two drawing out questions away from killing someone. Like, all jokes aside, I've been shocked at times. People are really quiet, and they're quiet at times. So like, if I say anything, it'd be real bad. Anger isn't just loud yelling. It's kind of a, um, a uh, not a trope. It, it's a uh, caricature of anger. It can be that. It often is that. Um, it's not just, like, kind of yell loud yelling, cussing someone out. Um, it can be a cold pulling away. It can be passive-aggressive comments that cut through someone's identity, value, and worth. It can be ghosting people and saying you're not important enough to deal with. I've written you off. I think for a lot of us, though, we often downplay that we're angry. Um, a counselor named Brad Hambrick, he wrote a book on forgiveness I've, I've mentioned before that I love. Uh, he's, he asks this. He says, have you ever said something like this? I'm not angry. I just get frustrated, right? Why can't I have a bad day without it being a big deal from time to time? I guess you never get angry. You're being too sensitive. Ma that's great for marriage. That's a great line for marriage. You want your marriage to thrive. S look at, right at your spouse and say you're being too sensitive. I'm sick of being the only one who ever says I'm sorry around here. I never say that. This is my personal favorite. Sorry to unload on you. I just needed to vent. <laughs> it's also a magical category of people who um, vent without gossiping. Um, it's a magical power. <laughs> Chances are, he says, if you've made any of these kinds of statements, you're dealing with an anger issue you've never admitted to yourself and can end up being destructive in really subtle ways over time. So it's important to note, it, note that in this passage, Jesus never commands us to not get angry. We put, put it back up. Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 22. Um, he doesn't say don't be angry. He gives a warning about what anger can do to us and where it can lead us. Do you guys see that? Um, Anger in itself isn't wrong. As a matter of fact, it's a gift from God like all of our emotions. Our emotions, if we listen to them, reveal to us where we're at. 
They don't reveal what's true. Truth comes outside of us. It doesn't come from inside of us. But they help us acknowledge and see where our internal world is not corresponding to God's reality. Uh, our emotions help us see, um, again, emotions are morally neutral. We live in a culture that worships emotions. If you feel it, do it. Again, some of us come from backgrounds where emotions were demonized. If you feel it, pretend you're not feeling it. Suppress it. A biblical view of emotions is feel them, listen to them, do something with what you're learning. The analogy I've given before, they're morally neutral. They're like gauges on a car. Okay? Now, again, it would be really foolish. Uh, back in the day, my, uh, my friend Jimmy, he had a uh, very old Honda Civic we would ride around in when we got out of high school. And he had a picture of his beautiful wife, Jessica, who was his girlfriend at the time, covering the, uh, the oil and the gas uh, side of the gauges. And so it was always kind of like, man, I don't know how low we are, right? Like, I'm stoked you're checking your girlfriend out, but, like, this thing could run out of gas. Like, we broke down a Pomona one time or something. It was a weird, it was a weird weekend. Um, that being said, right, to ignore gauges, to say, I'm not really a gauges person, is to your detriment. I'm not a big, like, why is the oil lot on kind of guy. Not touchy-feely like that, you know? That's not my personality, that's foolish. You're going <laughs> to, right? On the flip side, it's also foolish to go, this is what our culture does, it says we're low on gas. We have to run out. We got to drive it till the wheels fall out. We have to, right, we have to let the engine be destroyed because it's low on oil. We have to make that happen because it says it, right? So again, just because I feel something doesn't mean I have to obey that emotion and go somewhere destructive. But to ignore the emotion is to my detriment. Is this making sense? Anger is no different. If we don't listen to our anger, we'll miss what God wants to teach us about what we're believing, what we're worshiping, what's motivating us, and where we are heading. You could say that what you get emotional about tells me more about your beliefs as a Christian than whatever statement of faith you signed in our membership commitment document thing. Like, you could say the Nicene Creed's a great statement of faith, but what you get emotional about and why tells me about what you functionally believe, about yourself, about your worth, about God, about his, uh, him being in control, and on and on it goes. So we know that anger isn't inherently wrong um, for a couple reasons, but, but in addition to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, there's another passage in Ephesians 4 that, that, that dovetails with Matthew 5 really well. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, Ephesians 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So Paul's saying it's possible to be angry and not sin. You see that? Which means there are different types of anger, different types of ways to engage our anger, right? And I think there's three types of anger, right? Uh, how many of you guys want to know what the three types are? So glad you asked, right? We've got three types of anger, all right? Um, uh, I, because I, I'm a preacher, I like alliteration, so this is what we did. Um, so it is what it is, all right? We've got reactionary anger. We've got ruminating anger. We've got righteous anger. Spoiler alert, we're shooting for number three, righteous anger. Uh, the first type is what I'll call reactionary unrighteous anger. And if you want to know how this anger works, it's um, involuntary. Uh, it's short-lived. It's more about immediate actions than heart posture. Uh, think of an outburst when someone is grieving or afraid. Um... It's not a state of anger and bitterness that's, like, thought through. It's not ruminating. It's not. Um, we got a puppy about two and a half years ago, two years ago, at Christmas, and we found out that he had a parvovirus, and we found out he was probably going to die, and our kids were real bummed two days in. It was a fun Christmas day, going to the vet. 
Um, all jokes aside, it was awful. I took um, my son Calvin. I just remember he was grieving, man. I mean, he was like bargaining. He's like, I wonder if there's something we could do to fix it, you know? And then he, and then he, um, he, um, then he got really angry. And he's like, why do we even get a dog? Why do we even get a dog? They're just going to die, you know? And, and so he's got this anger going. He, he's grieving. Another, uh, as a parent, um, if your kids run in the street and you go, hey, come here, right? Uh, that, that's that's a- anxiety-induced. That's not like brooding, ruminating anger. That's you reacting real time, okay? So, so think of an outburst. Um, it, it could also be um, like when trauma is triggered from your past. You have an overreaction to something that even doesn't make sense to you. Five minutes later, like, I don't know why I reacted as strong as I did in that moment. Um, now, again, this kind of anger is short-lived, and oftentimes, this is a telltale to know if it's reactionary, uh, oftentimes the person who's expressing reactionary anger will apologize after their fear, grief, or stressor subsides. Uh, they do reparative work. They get help if they need it. They go, you know what, I don't know why I had such a strong reaction to that thing, but I'm not okay treating you like that. I need to get help. So there's reparative work. There's responsibility. They don't make excuses. Does that make sense, the, the difference? It happens to all of us, okay? Your kids spill whatever it is. You go, hey, you know, um, th- that would be reactive anger. Now, the second one is the damaging, dangerous one that Jesus is referring to. And it's ruminating anger. Ruminating unrighteous anger. Now, this is a voluntary, ongoing state of rumination, kind of replaying over and over what you're angry about, what you're going to say, what you wish you could say, how you hope their life would fall apart. It's bitterness and contempt and ultimately hatred rooted in false beliefs and sinful heart posture. This is like something that's being rehearsed. You're practicing your anger in a way. Um, by the way, again, yeah, this is the kind of anger Jesus is referring to in our text. Uh, the Greek word used for anger in Matthew 5 is a present participle, and it, it, uh, uh, it connotes an ongoing state of anger that we've given ourselves over to. Okay? So think of like um, a present participle would be like, I am walking. Okay? Just saying like, I am getting angry. I am being angered. Um, one scholar believes that for Americans, the best translation of anyone who is angry with their brother or sister would be to anyone who nurses a grudge towards their brother or sister. So it's, it's an ongoing thing you're giving yourself to. This isn't a quick reactionary moment. This is an ongoing choice to nurse a grudge, to start to put yourself um, in the box of judgment, starting to condemn them, starting to look down on them, um, starting to um, nurse self-righteousness and victimhood and bitterness, this type of anger moves away from people, not towards people. It paints a relationship in black and white where one person is all right and the other is all wrong. There's a book by um, Henry Cloud called Changes That Heal. And um, one of the changes, I forget what it's called now, um, but he basically says is as we mature as people, we can see both in ourselves and in others that no one is all good or all bad. Okay? That doesn't mean some people are mostly bad or your relationship is mostly bad. And maybe shouldn't continue, but it does mean that um, I can see the image of God in a really broken person. Um, and in terms of like peer brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about like abuse or something like that. I'm saying brothers and sisters, peers. Um, it's uh, in the church, brothers and sisters. Um, often, most of the time, it's it's not a 99 to one whose fault the situation is, even if it's mostly your fault or mostly their fault. Um, but if you're in 
this kind of anger, this ruminating anger. You only see what they did. It's all their fault. You, by the way, you can assume the worst. You don't ask them. You just ask yourself. I think they did it for terrible motives, right? Uh, if you ever want to have a really healthy uh, conflict or confrontation, come in and tell the person what their motives were. It goes great. Some of the best conversations me and my wife have had over the years is when we look the other person in the eye and go, I know why you did this thing that's morally neutral. That's sick and twisted what was in your heart, right? Um, right. And if we do it, we'll, we'll project motives. Um, ruminating anger is like, yeah, I project motives all day. I can make calls about what, where they're at and, and why. Now, Jesus goes, that's really dangerous, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and then the last one is righteous anger, righteous anger. Uh, James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, defines righteous anger this way, Good and Beautiful Life. He says, righteous anger consists in getting angry at the things that anger God and then seeking a proper remedy to correct the wrong. So you're mad at the right stuff in the right way. He continues, we ought to be angry about things like child abuse or the rich exploiting the poor or fraud or deception or neglect. It's right to become upset about injustice. This motivates us to work towards change. Uh, great, ex great examples of this um, uh, in this country would be like the civil rights movement. Uh, James Ryan Smith also mentions uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was a group that passed a ton of drunk driving laws. Uh, many of them were victims of, uh, you know, uh, their children were victims of drunk drivers. Uh, and so they, they took that anger, and instead of just being angry, they said, hey, let's do something constructive with it and change society for the better. Uh, much of the pro-life movement throughout the years, um, the FDA's founding, the Food and Drug Administration's founding. If you guys know this, like 100 years ago, they could put any, I know you're like, they put a lot of stuff in our food now that's gross. You have no idea. It was like lead, paint, <laughs> and they couldn't even get in trouble for it. And then a group of people said, this is crazy. People are getting hurt and sick, especially poor people. There needs to be standards for this. Um, much of first wave feminism was good stuff. It was saying men, men and women should be equal. That's equal. And then lastly, uh, the abolitionist movement in terms of abolishing slavery um, in the Western world, which has really led to abolishing it pretty much everywhere uh, since then. Now, just because anger is normal doesn't mean it's trivial or not a big deal. We all get angry, right? Like, again, because I, 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 I want to simultaneously normalize your anger, but also give you a healthy respect for it. Okay? Um, I remember I was talking to a pastor one time, and he actually had, um, about 30 years ago, there were villages in Zimbabwe where lions would still roll through the village, like, fairly regularly. Um, and... I said, man, what's life like in those places? And he said, man, everyone just has a healthy respect for the lions. They see lions way more than you do, without offense. But so it's, they're more normal to them than to you, but they respect them way more than often Americans do who go on like game drives or you know, at the, you know, the zoo banging on the thing or whatever. Uh, they've got a healthy respect, a healthy fear. And I think anger is the same way. It's around often, but it doesn't mean it's safe. Um, we see this in, in verse 22 again. Jesus says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, again, nursing a grudge, will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now, um, by the way, you're like, man, fool is a pretty weird insult to pick. Like, there's a lot of really bad stuff you could call someone. Like, fool is like, I mean, I grew up in Chula Vista. We call everyone fool is like a, a friend term. Um, right, like why fool? And the idea is it, it's, it's, it's someone who is intellectually and morally inferior, and it's cutting someone down for who they are, not what they do. It's writing them off as a person is the best way to describe it, which writing people off is a good way to get into a space where you can murder them. When they're no longer humans, you have to worthy of dignity, love, and respect. 
And so Jesus reels in this passage that if we give ourselves over to toxic, sinful, ruminating anger, we become the types of people who murder if given the chance. We become people who destroy things and people and relationships. We bring hell on earth with us everywhere we go. And we often will become the type of people who in our bitterness and self-righteousness reject God and ultimately spend eternity apart from him as well. This is kind of shocking. It's supposed to shock us because unrighteous anger is a really big deal. And by the way, we live in a culture right now that encourages unrighteous anger. Conservative politics, progressive politics, social media, it's outrage city. I want to make you as mad as you can be and do the wildest stuff that you can do with no resolution, usually. Just hyped and angry because a group of people are hyped and angry before you usually even have facts. And so unrighteous anger is a really big deal. It, it's coming for your soul. Let's get back to our Ephesians text, the cross-reference. We see another reason why it's such a big deal. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, again, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Talking about relationships in the church. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I want to highlight verse 27. We'll come back to the second half of 26 later. But 27 says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Or if you have a lot of translations, a foothold. Uh, James Bryan Smith helps, uh, helpfully comments on this passage when he writes, When we let the sun go down on our anger, we allow it to poison our souls. This is why Paul follows with the warning, do not make room for the devil. Uh, the Greek word for room is topos, which means place or footing. It's where we get the uh, word topography. It's like a place in space. Um, it, in um, Matthew's gospel, or, or sorry, Luke's gospel, when it says there was no room at the inn for Jesus, on the Christmas story, it says there's no topos. There's no space for Jesus to be born. And so what that passage is saying is that um, anger unchecked, bitterness unchecked, it gives, uh, it gives the enemy space to work in your life. Okay? Um, back in the day, a foothold or a stronghold, um, it was the safest part of a, of a fortress or a castle. Right, so let's say the walls are breached, the invaders are coming in. Um, you've watched Lord of the Rings, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that's happening, and there uh, there would be this tower, like a strong tower that you could go into, and there'd be like one door, and you have to go up. And so even if you have a thousand soldiers, they have to go on one at a time. And with a spear, you can kind of just murk them on the stairs until their bodies just kind of fill it out, and you're safe. And you hope help arrives from the outside. John Cross, I'm a big fan of the word murk. Um, so. What Paul is saying is, is to live in a state of unrighteous anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. It's to give the enemy the access to the most core part of your heart. You've never met a bitter person who's close to Jesus. Matter of fact, you often find that people that are really bitter and angry with other people all the time, they go, man, I'm not getting much out of the worship these days. I'm not connecting with God. We'll, we'll see why here in a second. But so anger is normal, but it's powerful and dangerous. It can lead us to some of the darkest places humans can go. Matter of fact, when I've been doing um, like spiritual warfare stuff, we've done deliverance ministry where people are afflicted by demons. I don't do this all the time or often. I don't brag about it. But when we've done it, the most key thing isn't like a crazy spell or something or like incantation in a horror movie. We do a lot of prayers and stuff, but usually the forgiveness exercise is where stuff breaks open. And you see like their, their countenance change. And so um, unrighteous anger can lead us to abandoning God or giving the enemy of our souls opportunity to work. So that's a big deal. 
Okay. Now, um, to put you at ease, these last two set, these last two points are much shorter than the first points. But it was a really big foundation. Number two, um, unresolved, unrighteous anger in our relationships with each other impacts our relationship with God. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 23. It says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. So um, the idea is someone coming to Jerusalem to present a sacrifice most scholars point out that, that where Jesus was teaching even, like, to go from there to where the sacrifice was offered would have been somewhere between 50 and 100 miles, depending on where you lived in Israel. And so imagine you go to offer the sacrifice, and you're like, wait a minute. I think Abraham Moishe, my neighbor, I think he's mad at me. Um, I know I've come 50 miles on foot or with, you know, donkeys and stuff, maybe kids in tow, right? Road trip from hell. Uh, I need to go make it right. God cares more about that relationship than me offering up an expensive gift, a piece of livestock or something like that to be sacrificed. Like, like he, he wants me to go back and, and make it right. Jesus is teaching here that, th- that the quality of our, hor- our, of our horizontal relationships impacts the experience of our vertical relationships. Just like you've never met a bitter person who's thriving spiritually, you've never met someone who has a genuine hatred in their heart for people, for someone who is close to Jesus at the time. Um, oh, sorry. Um, one thing I want to say is, is a, a principle that you can take from this passage that's pretty obvious and practical is if you know someone has something against you or you have something against someone like singing worship's great, tithing's great, coming to church is great, share the gospel's great, but go make that thing right. Studying the Bible's great, it's all great. Go make that relationship right. And this is a brother or sister, this is someone who is also following Jesus. Go make that relationship right. And if you need help doing that, we'd love to help you do that if you're not sure how to. But this is taught throughout scripture. In 1 John it says, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, like if you don't love the church, the love of God is not in you. Again, never met a Christian who hates the church, who loves Jesus. Um, if you mistreat your wife, Peter says, your prayers will be hindered to husbands. Yeah, and you've never met a, you've never met like a jerk husband who's genuinely mistreating his wife, who's close to Jesus. This is so, so, so important. And then number three, um, we must resolve anger as quickly as we can to avoid the fallout on our souls and the souls of those we love. Uh, Matthew 25 to 26. It says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to court. Your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Um, uh, contextually, back in the day, there was um, courts were often councils of elders in the different villages in Israel and Palestine. And he's saying, um, when you're on your way to court, another thing that was really common in the ancient world was a thing called like debt prison or debt jail. Uh, and so you'd either be enslaved because you were in debt, literally enslaved, um, or you were put into jail, and even your, f- your family would be put into jail until the debt was paid off. And so um, Jesus is basically saying that if you leave unrighteous anger, you, you leave it alone. This is a, a metaphor, an illustration of how the severity picks up over time. 
it gets worse and worse and worse, and it will cost you. Verse 26, truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So again, what, what Jesus is describing is that um, if you don't resolve anger quickly, it builds and it builds and it builds, and it doesn't fix itself. Um, we don't have a debt court. We don't really have a great illustration of that. Um, a good illustration for me is like the dentist. How many of you guys love the dentist? There's always a couple, right? A couple weirdos. Yep, I love it. Um, uh, right, right. Uh, for most of us, we're terrified, right? It's like public speaking, death, the drill, right? Um, and what can start to happen is if you don't like the dentist, um, every once in a while, some people have perfect teeth. Uh, our family doesn't. Um, <laughs> that English blood <laughs> just happening. Uh, what can start to happen is, uh, I didn't get the cool accent, I got the bad teeth. But that being said, um, what can start to happen is, is you're, you're like, I think I might have like a cavity, right? And, uh, and you're like, no, and you're kind of in denial. Like, no, no way. I'm flossing, uh, I'm brushing these babies twice a day. Got the Phillips two minute, you know, I, I, I keep it on until it's done. I'm flossing, I'm mouth washing, I'm doing it all. And uh, then over time it starts to hurt. And what happens is if you leave a true surface cavity alone, um, by the way, surface cavity, I just found out, my man David Cho, um, sometimes you don't even need a filling. They can just take it off. Um, but if you leave it alone, the surface cavity, uh, oral surgeon in the house, a, a surface cavity can become a more serious cavity, which can become uh, like you need a root canal. Your tooth's rotten out completely. It escalates. It doesn't get better over time. Maybe Dave's got stories of, you know, they, they – reverse but generally that's the pattern of what happens with our teeth our anger is the same way it doesn't go away on its own and left unresolved it just leads to more and more destruction bad breath bad gums tooth lost more pain that whole thing this is why again uh, again we see this in ephesians chapter 4 it's a great cross-reference he says um be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger uh, don't let the sun go down your anger. Um, that's not literal. A friend of mine had his wife stay up till 3 a.m. to work out a conflict. First year of marriage, rookie mistake, poor woman, right? Poor woman. Uh, poor husband, if you do that, you know, uh, uh, that's not the point. Also, if you work it out literally, it gets tricky. You live in Alaska, you got like four months of daytime. Like they just can really sit on their anger, um, right? What if it's already night? Like it's complex, right? Sun didn't go down on my anger, went up on my anger. I have more time. Um, the principle is go work out your conflict, uh, your um, anger as quickly as possible. Don't let it become a bigger problem than it is. Keep short accounts with God and with people. What might that look like? It might, it might look like going quickly and asking for forgiveness. It might look like um, checking out an assumption, asking for clarification. Some of the saddest moments in the life of this church and the life of my family of origin have been when people made assumptions and then they, they're confronting someone when they should just be curiously asking a question. Hey, you said this. Did you mean, you know, because someone can say something, we can take it a certain way and then we run with it. If that's what they meant, here's what else is true. We've got a whole alternate universe you're living in that's full of lies that's causing you to be alienated from people. God's called you to love and be in relationship with, assuming the worst. Um, it might look like, so it might look like checking out an assumption, asking for clarification. It might look like extending forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, isn't the same thing as trust. We did a whole sermon on that. Um, I can give to you. Got a great book I can give to you, too. Trust takes time to rebuild if it's ever rebuilt. Um, forgiveness is a choice you make in an instant. They're two different things. Um, uh, it, it could look like not gossiping, slandering, icing them out, or being passive-aggressive. 
I'll tell you what it does mean. It means moving towards people. Again, people in unrighteous, ruminating anger, they don't move towards the person they're angry with. They just live in the anger fantasy. When they do finally move towards them, if they're unrepentant, it's bad. There's emotional wounding, maybe even physical wounding. It is really, really bad. But here's one of the things I know is that when we move towards people, it's easier to demonize someone who we're not in proximity to. Like if I never see you, I can really let my assumption get going. If I see you every day, it's a lot harder. Does that make sense? Now, again, if they're actually sinning against you, they're actually wronging you, to see them every day and they keep doing it, that's not going to make the anger go away. But that's a different situation. It's, you need to work that out and confront that and all that stuff. Um, that's different than they hurt you once and you've been hanging on to it. But what I find is that proximity, um, absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Proximity makes the heart grow fonder. It's hard to, to demonize you if I'm around you. Um, they, uh, they've done studies um, a bunch of times in places and nations that are ravaged by civil war and um, ethnic conflicts. And what they found is, is that when they put people together from the different ethnic groups to work on a project together, uh, they end up, like, their, their hatred for the group goes down, like, a 5 out of 10. They spend, like, a month with, right? Like, when we're close to people, it's hard to demonize them. This is true in our interpersonal relationships, too. It doesn't mean you're going to still, it doesn't mean you're going to agree with the person. It doesn't mean you're gonna, always going to want to hang with them, and they're going to become a great hang you love, and you just always want to be with. Um, but it does mean it's, it's hard to hate them when you're in true proximity to them if you're walking with Jesus. And so for some of you, it's just moving towards someone a little bit maybe feeling it out for a while and then having a conversation. Um, but, but I just want to say this as we close and go into communion. I'll call the worship team up. As a pastor, as your brother, as a friend, please hear, uh, please hear what I taught today from, from like Jesus. Hear what Jesus is teaching about unrighteous anger. Um, he's not trying to shock just to be shocking. He knows something as the creator of the universe, as the king of the universe. He designed humanity. He designed relationships. He knows how they work better than you do. He designed emotions. He knows how they're to be used better than you do. Um, if we try to do it our own way, we will pay. Unrighteous anger, it's toxic for your soul, and it only gets worse. And it doesn't just hurt you. It starts to hurt people that you love a lot your kids, your spouse, your closest friends, your parents, your sisters, your brothers and sisters in Christ, people that you know love you, that you love now, um, that anger starts to color everything. You become a person you don't want to become. And so I want to encourage you, go, you guys, resolve this. Talk about it. If you need help, let's talk about it. Love to meet with you, talk about it. If you need a uh, therapy referral, we'd love to give that to you. If you need pastoral care, we'd love to give that to you. If you need coaching on how to talk to someone, we'd love to give that to you. But we want you to thrive and be free from anger. But it starts out by acknowledging to God himself, Lord, I'm angry and I need your help. And by the way, some of you, you have been really wrong. The anger is not crazy. It's legitimate and it's righteous. But what you do with that anger is a choice that you need to make. And it's important which choice you make. And so right now, as we, uh, we'll go to communion. Um, and as we do, I want to reflect on another part of Ephesians 4. I know I've looked a couple times at what Paul says about anger. But he also says some things about forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness 
anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. What I know about you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in this room today, I know two things about you, at least. There's more about you that's true than this, but there's not less about you that's true than this. And it's this, you are forgiven and you are dearly loved. And you don't deserve to be loved how you've been loved. And you don't deserve the forgiveness that's been extended to you. Communion is a time when we reflect on that unearned, undeserved love where the king of the universe stepped into human history. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He dies the death that you and I deserve to die to reconcile you to God. And it's my prayer that, that we could reflect on that for a second and say, Lord, I'm really angry. And I might even be unreconciled to someone. Would you help me remember your forgiveness of me? Your you moving towards me when I wasn't moving towards you. You loving me when I wasn't loving you. And your death on your cross, your body was broken, your blood was spilled. And in light of that reality, I want to go and do this thing. God only asks us to do things he's already done for us. So he says, I've forgiven you, you're free to forgive. I've loved you, you're free to love. Jesus, our king, you're a king who could have crushed us, you could have punished us, you could have conquered us, but ex instead you extended us pardon. The king offers a pardon. The king offers adoption. The king offers citizenship. The king offers everything that is his generously shared with you. If you'll turn to him and ask for his forgiveness, this is what you've offered us. We were enemies, we were rebels, we were pushing you away, we were hurting you and the people you created and loved. And you moved toward us and said, I love you. Come to me. Surrender to me. This free nation you have out here that, that you think is free, it, where, where you do whatever you want to do, but you hurt yourself and those you love, and you're being hurt, and, and everyone just does their own thing and gives themselves over to wrath and unrighteous anger. It's not how it's meant to be. Come into my house of joy. Come into my house of freedom. I paid the price, you can come in. It's free for you, but you have to come in. And so, Jesus, I thank you as king that you offer us relationship, that you offer us forgiveness, that you offer us to become not just a citizen of the country, but a, a member of the royal family with an inheritance and brothers and sisters and access to the Father. And so, Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you, Jesus, that you absorbed all the wrath of God, righteous wrath, in our place, on our behalf, so that there's none left for us. There's not an ounce left for us. We don't relate to you according to our sins anymore. We relate to you according to Jesus. Would we not make others, would we not relate to others based on their sins either? Help us reconcile, help us forgive. Whether situations that are really complicated and require wisdom and safety and all that, yeah, we want to do that. Would you give us the hearts that want to be people who forgive, people who are set free from anger to live as Jesus taught us to live? It's in his name we pray. Amen.